Hey, you're listening to Into It from Vulture and New York Magazine. I'm Sam Sanders. This week, we're talking strike. After five months, Hollywood writers got a lot of what they wanted, and they have a contract, and they're going back to work. But they are also going back to jobs in an industry that might be shrinking. Even before the strike, streaming companies were getting ready to make a whole lot less stuff. That is not the result of the strike. That is the result of forces that were going to be happening regardless. And so hopefully what this stripe means is that when they come back to a Hollywood that is doing fewer productions, they can also get fewer jobs, but those fewer jobs can sustain them in a way that their seven jobs were not sustaining them before. The aftermath of the writer's strike and what's next for TV and film. I'm joined by Vulture's Joe Adelian and Catherine Van Arendonk. All of that and them after the break. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, Joe, Catherine, hello, hello, hello. Hello, The strike is over. The strike is over. The strike is over. I guess first, how are y'all feeling as two journalists who have covered this thing a lot over the last few months? Thank God. Um, I mean, it's, and look, let's also say uh, the WJ strike is over. Uh, SAG after are still on strike. Probably will hopefully be settled quickly. The talks are beginning again next week. But, you know, as one executive told me uh, yesterday when I talked to them, um, never say never these days. <laughs> okay. Catherine, how are you feeling? I love TV so much. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been so upsetting to me to know mm-hmm. that the TV that I want to exist in front of my eyeballs is not getting made because uh, yeah. the people who make it are not being fairly compensated for their work. And so it is just a, it's a huge sigh of relief, obviously, for the industry, but also for me personally as a person who I don't do well when there's no television in front of me. <laughs> you need your stories. I do. Catherine needs her stories. I really do. <laughs> um, I will say, as someone watching all of this, I am happy this strike is over, but watching what these executives have done and not done and how they've postured the last several months kind of made me sick. It, it's been very interesting to watch Bob Iger go from one of the most revered men in Hollywood to one of the most hated. Like, these execs fumbled the PR campaign around this. That It was wild to me. Uh, in a story that I'm working on now and talking to a bunch of writers yesterday and, and even some executives, and, um, you know, there's elation and euphoria in Hollywood right now, but you don't have to scratch that far beneath that surface to see the other a- emotion is anger. Uh, yeah. One person who's been a scribe for like 30 years said these companies destroyed people's lives for five months for mm. no bleeping reason when yeah. they could have made the same deal on day one. And and there well, is yeah. rage. And they've told me we will conveniently forget because we need to do work with <laughs> these people, work. Yeah. but we will never forgive. And that's an undercurrent Ooh. and it, and it's it's spicy out there. 
Okay. I will say, I mean, all of the things that the writers got in this deal, it's the same stuff they were asking for for months before the strike. Like, the executives knew what they wanted. They just dragged their feet. Anywho, without further ado, let's break down what's actually in this deal. Big picture. There's a few big planks. There's some potential AI protections. Uh, There's some minimum numbers for staffing for writers' rooms. And there's something resembling a residual scheme for shows that do well on streaming. How can we explain those things to our listeners uh, in a way they'll understand? (laughs) And I'll understand. (laughs) Well, yeah. Okay. First of all, I'm not going to claim to be a labor negotiation expert. So uh, that's one of those little warnings they have at the end of prescription commercials where they say, you know, side effects. Let me preface that. But I did spend yesterday talking to uh, some people who are a lot smarter about this than I am, including some writers, including Cynthia Littleton, a a great person over who's executive editor of Variety, who's been, who covered the last strike and literally wrote a book about it. And Mm -hmm. uh, the way they're thinking about this is, yes, this was a historic win for writers Mm -hmm. uh, on so many levels. And there are the big four issues that we you mentioned AI residuals, um, and there is progress made on that. Um, I, I don't think, despite the euphoria around this, that this deal comes close to solving all those problems. Let's take mm. the residual situation. There will now okay. be um, a situation where if your show, uh, first of all, is produced for a streaming platform, um, that matters, and it goes on to streaming, uh, and in its first three months on the platform, or then for the first three months of every subsequent year, it uh, gets a number of views that are roughly equivalent to 20% of that streamer's subscription base, then there's a bonus that kicks in. That's okay. going to be a very hard bar. That's not mm, going that's to... That's like Stranger Things level. Stranger Things, it could be, a, but, you know, the Hollywood reported a good story talking about uh, Rick Porter, who's their ratings guru, sort of looked at some of the streaming numbers from last year, and you could see something like uh, Beef on Netflix, which was a big hit, but not sort of a genre-defining mega hit that will have T-shirts being printed. Uh, that would probably qualify, too. So that's good, but it's still okay. going to be a high bar. But I do want to say, and just stop you right there, that seems like a big deal. It is. You know, for years, it seemed as if the streamers said, we will never do anything approaching a residual system. We just won't do it. And now they're saying, we're going to do it, and we're going to tailor it to each platform. Even if it's not Seinfeld or Friends-level residuals, the fact that it's happening is big. It's 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 landmark, and this is why the writers are so happy, because they okay. got their nose in the door. They got into the system. They're into the matrix. They're seeing the data, <laughs> and it will allow them to sort of say, well, okay, what does this mean? What sort of tricks, what sort of Hollywood accounting will they prevent? And suddenly, oh, only one show a year. You know, There will be ways in the next deal where they can take the data, what they learned from these first three oh, years, and, even sort, more. and do more. Yeah. Yeah. That's you're right. That's exactly why yeah. Netflix didn't okay. want to do this because they they had a free ride. They and they know that free mm-hmm. ride is over. It's over. So that okay. So that's one big plank. This bonus system based on high performance. It's new, revolutionary for streaming. Uh, there's also a big part of the deal that. Uh, kind of revolves around the number of writers that need to be in writers' rooms to make a show. Catherine, what's going on there? Yeah, so this is something that uh, was, from the very beginning of the strike, uh, a huge point for writers. And uh, I heard a lot of people, I I know Joe did as well, suggesting that um, minimum staffing was a real Mm non-starter for this deal. And so it is a, a big deal that any version of it exists. The numbers that the WGA got are lower than the ones that they had in initially uh, wanted. And there is one significant caveat in the minimum staffing as well. Um, Hmm. But they 
did get huge protections for the idea of writers' rooms that were either understaffed or they were operating in this mini room structure where you would have a couple people come in and break a story for a couple weeks and then maybe they would and maybe they wouldn't actually get fully staffed into a writer's room and then Mm. maybe they would and maybe they wouldn't be significantly supported enough. Probably they couldn't continue through production. There is new language in the contracts that says – Many rooms have to be a certain size. They have to be, you have to get paid for a certain number of weeks. Writers' rooms then, depending on the number of episodes ordered, have a sort of ratio of how many people need to be staffed to support that number of episodes. Uh, And so all of this is language that uh, the WGA feels strongly is crucial to helping people actually make a living doing uh, this mm-hmm. job instead of what was becoming more like a freelancing situation where you're perpetually, because of the nature of streaming series, which tend to run for shorter episode counts and fewer season counts, you're sort of pinging gotcha. around from one part of a room to another part of a room and you're cobbling together what might be an annual income, but probably wasn't an annual yeah. income. Um, and this is meant to help address that. The significant caveat on that is that they did say all of those minimum staffing requirements exist unless the entire show is written by one person. And I'm thinking of the way that Shonda wrote Queen Charlotte, I think, by herself. I'm thinking about Mike White writing all of White Lotus by himself. They still get to do their solo stuff, right? Yes, and uh, okay. infamously Taylor Sheridan, although... Oh, it would be very interesting. <laughs> he <needs the> writer's <laughs> room. <laughs> I, keep, I keep waiting for some some uh, anonymous script supervisor on one of his shows to be like, I actually write them all. Yeah. But yes, this is sort of the auteur rule where you can have one person who comes in and okay. does actually write all the thing. But that tends to apply to a pretty small percentage of shows. So we have talked about the writer's room minimum staffing requirements. We've talked about this new bonus residual system for high-performing shows on streaming. What are the other two big planks of this deal? Uh, well, the, one of them is AI. Do you want to talk about okay. AI, Joe? <laughs> Can we? Well, this is the thing. I was reading up on the AI stuff in the contract, in the abridged version of the contract, and I read it, and I was like, what are y'all actually saying? Mm-hmm. What What's really going on here? Yeah. There was language around it, but I don't know what it does. Tell me, please. Yeah. Uh, well, I, look, <laughs> the, the, these deals are rich. And the same people who write those terms and conditions that you see uh, when you sign mm-hmm. up for something in language that does not make any sense. Uh, write they also these, write contracts. <laughs> exactly. And and look, for all these points, everyone's waiting to see how Hollywood lawyers will get around them. And there are already people oh. saying, well, we can do this and we can do that. But, okay. but again, it's a lot like the residuals. It's getting their foot in the door and, and a statement of intent. This allows the whole issue to be, again, put on pause for three years until everyone sees how AI develops. I, I have the language here right now, and it says, like, we've established these regulations. AI can't write or rewrite material, but a writer can choose to use AI when performing writing services. But also the company must disclose to the writer if there's any AI stuff, but also the WGA reserves the right to fight against AI being trained. It's very like this, but that, but also, but does it give any more clarity to writers besides just saying on paper, we see that AI is a threat? 
You know? Yeah. I mean, go ahead, Catherine. Well, <laughs> I was just going to say part of what is so tricky about any contract about AI right now is that like every other part of the industry and like the world, we're all just looking at AI and saying like, it seems troubling, (laughs) but we don't know how it's actually going to go. Like, uh, you know, we seem pretty far away from AI actually being able to produce a workable script that it doesn't require a significant human intervention. Will that be the case two years from now? No one's sure. Mm. So the language to me reads like we are just trying to make sure that writers are still getting paid. Yeah. It's a slow your roll sort of thing, um, message to the studios. But, but you know, I talked to one uh, veteran showrunner yesterday who said that, look, what he's worried about is that, you know, there could be, he says he knows more than a few of his less scrupulous showrunner friends who would be more than willing to sort of take a job where um, all the old scripts of Grey's Anatomy get fed into a computer, um, come up with ideas and sort of outlines for scripts or even semi-completed scripts. And this one person's job is to sort of turn them all into workable scripts. And instead of eight people getting paid, he gets paid that money. I mean, there are going to be people who might be willing to do that. This is the thing about the AI conversation in Hollywood. Like, so this contract language applies to writers, applies to these studios and streamers, but the other players that these contracts can't litigate are the AI companies themselves that are just slurping up every script and every word online already. And it almost feels like the studios are just trying to be quiet while those other companies do that to see how far they can go. (laughs) And then that's going to affect down the road what these studios actually do with AI. But everyone's waiting to see what the non-Hollywood tech companies are doing and where they end up with this, right? Yeah. And, you know, we have started to see in the last couple months lawsuits um, that people are bringing against some of these companies to say, like, you have scraped all of my copyright material without any of my permission. We've seen publications start to uh, say that you're not allowed to scrape certain, you know, uh, journalism outlets and other places for all of that information. Uh, How far any of that litigation goes is also something that's very up in the air. Um, And again, I don't think there's actually been a lot of proven process where somebody has done that feed all of Grey's Anatomy into an AI and then produce a workable script out of it. Um, I know. I well, let me tell you something. As someone who's watched a bunch of Grey's Anatomy, that's not possible. <laughs> you cannot put every Grey script into a machine and get anything legible out of it. Okay? <laughs> well, that's not after a slightly a slightly different issue. And coherence, <laughs> let's also not like not everything's about coherence, okay? Like sometimes <laughs> does AI understand my feelings? I'm I'm skeptical. I don't know. I've seen season 2 of the morning show, so I'm not sure that we can say that there have not been any AI scripts. I'm kidding. I uh, I've not watched it. I, by the way, let the record show. I love every minute of the morning show. So let the record show. I think the morning show is a hot mess. Let me ta- let, let the record mess. show that I think Citadel was actually written by AI. But keep going. <laughs> okay. Okay. Stay with us more with Joe and Catherine after the break. Calling all female runners, it's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why Milk? 
Dairy Milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. So we've covered uh, staffing numbers for writers' rooms. We've covered this residual system. We've covered AI. Is that all the big stuff in there, or is there anything else big in the contract before we move on to how it's going to all play out? Uh, the other big gain of this contract was on the little issues. There were smaller things. So talking to writers, they said the biggest deal was there are all these issues that have been, in some cases, been going on for 10, 15, 20 years that the Guild has never been able to negotiate. For example, screenwriters, uh, you know, there's a whole thing in terms of like if they have to write a second draft of a script, they didn't get paid for it. Now they do. There yeah. are. Um, oh, there's the one um, where if you're a writing team, only one of you gets health insurance. Like, what the heck? Well, because you, you count as one, and so you don't have enough, uh, you, you don't get paid enough. Now, those that salary, even though you only get paid and you have to split the money, it, for the purposes of your health contributions, it counts as a full salary. So that happens. Um, there are staff writers, um, who, which are the junior-level, entry-level writers on a show, the lowest totem pole of writers. If they wrote a script, they didn't get paid for it. It was sort of like free labor. Now they have to get paid for it. There are these small things that people keep telling me, and I've seen in other reports, are going to be life-changing. And that's mm. where leverage came in. I think the, when it, the studios were so desperate at the end to settle, they said, fine, 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 fine. Let's just, it's Yom Kippur coming up on Sunday. We have a fine. You get that. Okay, yeah. fine. And you turn around and it's like, oh crap, we, we conceded all these things. And that's what labor negotiations are. They're a slow slog. And this negotiation, the Writers Guild just won big. I'm hearing us talk about all of these things that the writers got, including just like more money across the board. That's like one of the big planks as well. But I'm hearing y'all break down what's in this deal. It's stuff that they were clearly asking for well before the strike. The executives at AMPTP knew this. Why did it take five months to give these folks a pretty straightforward solution? But Why five months? I still don't understand. Well, I was going to say, because I did some reporting on this yesterday talking, because again, there is this question of why the hell did this take five months? And a couple of theories that I got from writers and executives um, in terms of the delay, one is, you know, right now, even before the strike, the big conglomerates were sort of saddled with debt from streaming and the transition to streaming and suddenly having to deal with the fact that Wall Street, their masters, um, had decided that streaming growth was no longer the, the operable metric that mattered. Um, it was profitability. And how do you get profitability quickly, you cut costs. And there is a strong line of thinking, even among people who are diehard executives who are not conspiracy theorists, that it's very clear based upon where they settled that they didn't want to do this deal until they had at least a quarter, a quarter and a half of no costs. And what they did was they took all this money mm. off the books for that long. And it is ghoulish and it is awful. Uh, and it's why writers are so angry because it looked like they did this just to save money in the short term, no matter what the potential long-term damage is. The mm. other thing is the unique collection of executives that we had. Uh, unique the word for it. 
You need well, the word for here, here's, it, Joe. Here's, here, here's what one uh, deep industry insider on the executive studio side told me. Uh, David Zaslav has never dealt with labor at this level. Bob Iger is clearly preoccupied with cleaning up his own mess. Ooh. Donna Langley, who runs Universal Television right now and film, doesn't really know television because she's new. And Ted Sarandos was the architect of a lot of the problems the industry has. Go. So, and, and then you The four said, horsemen of the apocalypse, okay? <laughs> Come on. And, and then to top that off, this person says you had Carol Lombardini at the MPTP who was fighting the last war. She was fighting from a playbook that made sense Damn. before, but not now. And it was bad all around. So we took that all together, yeah. and that's why we had this delay. AMPTP was not sending their best. Mm-mm. No. Let's move on, though. I want to talk about what happens now that this deal is done and this strike is over. I'm hearing mixed messages. I'm hearing on the one hand, the late night shows, the daytime shows, they're already coming back. I was talking to a friend who writes in the Star Trek universe. He's like, our room is getting back together to start writing next week. But then I'm also hearing that some of this stuff that has been delayed, postponed, canceled, it'll take a while to come back and it might not. What do the next few weeks or months of re-upping look like for the industry, Catherine? Well, so I mean, the most important thing to note is that SAG is still on strike, right? And so yeah, the actors still aren't acting. No, right? And so yes, um, there are a lot of shows that are operating on other kinds of contracts. Drew Barrymore will be back. Uh, <laughs> Thank God, my long national nightmare is over. Um, and Drew's back to teach me the ways. <laughs> Late night comedy variety; those things uh, can can get going pretty quickly. And there are a lot of shows where there's a lot of writing work that they were in pre-production that didn't really involve actors, you know, needing to be on a set uh, in order to move forward yet because they were still just trying to get scripts together. And so that all can start to move forward um, pretty quickly. But we really have no idea how long it's going to take SAG to uh, figure this whole situation out. Perhaps it will be a similar situation where now we've all, it's like all the studios decided that they're just, they're not, they're done with strikes and it will go pretty Mm -hmm. quickly. Perhaps there will be a major sticking point. We don't necessarily know yet. Um, I have heard late November if SAG can move quickly, but I, I think it really is still a bit of a question mark. I want to ask you both about what the logistics of the return are going to look like. When I talk to my friends in L.A. who, like, work in the industry, they're like, oh, once people can get back to work, it's going to be chaos. (laughs) All of this pent-up energy to start making stuff again. All the calendars and schedules for stuff has gotten out of whack. Everyone is going to be applying for all the jobs because they haven't been making money for five months. Like, is the next few months of just getting all this stuff back on operation going to be a logistical nightmare? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we did this before. <laughs> we had this. This is this yeah. is COVID, right? This was yeah. a similar um, yeah. okay. Okay. situation where it was like everything stopped. All of, And then when we came back, the world looked different like, and it was more yeah. expensive than it used uh-huh. to be. And no one was sure what the rules are. And look, no one, it was not fun. I'm, no one's like, yay, we get to do that again. But it, it happened and then we made it through. Okay. I, yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, <laughs> I think Hollywood has a ability to move quickly and, you know, fact that 
that late night is coming back, you know, in literally one week is big deal. not totally surprising, okay. but a little fast. Yeah. But I think there is going to be a, a beautiful chaos as they try to figure it all out. Um, but I do think it's going to take a while for some shows to get back that are sort of more deeply scripted. And I think that we're also going to see some shows that um, what might happen, for example, is there were shows that were ordered by the net broadcast networks to be sort of new fall shows. Uh, I have a feeling those shows are going to get pushed back to become fall shows for 24 because I don't think some networks are really going to want to, they're going to have want to have more episodes of their hits and not want to take too many chances. I think there could be some. January is a window to launch new shows. January is sort of a reset button. You've got football playoffs and everything else. So I think you could see a couple of the new shows. Uh, but I think the, on the broadcast, if anyone's still watching broadcast TV, um, you know, uh, those shows are going to be sort of more the hits than the, the new Am shows. Am I going to get Abbott back by the end of the year? Oh, yes. Oh, really? you'll, you'll get well, Not by the end uh, of the oh, year. But I want it you by will, the end you of will, the year. Unless they make a Christmas episode, but you will get <laughs> okay. it by, or oh, yeah. you'll get it by yeah, January, yeah. for sure. All right, after the break, we take a look at the Hollywood landscape going forward. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's also one of those things where I'm like, can even once the actor's strike ends, can these industries ramp back up to what they were doing before the strike? Because a lot of people I've heard during this, these strikes left L.A. and kind of left Hollywood. Some of these folks have gone to work in other sectors, right? I think, um, look, I'm predicting and worried about um, something that you might start seeing a narrative for me in certain quarters of the media or spin um, that says when there are fewer shows ordered uh, and somehow writer jobs are harder to get that it was all because of the strike. Yes. Um, that's BS. And even people who are executives admit it's BS. The fact is we were in a bubble before the strike. Um, uh, the bubble is bursting and that is going to cause some pain in terms of the relative number of positions in 2024 versus 2019 is going to be radically different or 2022 even. Um, but yeah, I do think there is going to be impact. I think the industry that writers go back to and actors go back to well, yeah. is going to look it's a lot be different smaller. because it already was. And let's talk more about that because, you know, before the strike began, there was a lot of chatter that Peak TV had gotten too peak and there were just too many shows and nothing was making enough money. And Sam, no that was not platforms. chatter. That was an <laughs> anvil on <laughs> that our That was heads. an anvil, yes. <laughs> and so we, like, for instance... 
my favorite number about all of this. Last year, there were 599 scripted shows mm-hmm, created. Mm-hmm, 599. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How many of them made money? How many of them should have never existed? So, you know, the strike ends. Writers are coming back to work, but they're coming back to an environment in which everyone has acknowledged what was happening before the strike was too much. Yes. And so what I'm saying is, like, in that environment, are all of the writers who struck, striked, how many of them will actually be able to walk back into jobs? Not everyone who was on that picket line, right, Catherine? No, that is true. But again, that is not the result of the strike. That is the result mm. of forces that were going to be happening regardless. Yeah. What the strike does hopefully, is mean that, yes, those are writers who are not going to be able to come back to as many jobs as they had Mm. before because it is no longer an industry where you get a job on Friends and then you have that one job for 10 years, right? People have piecing together a career with multiple jobs. Right, multiple jobs. And so hopefully what this stripe means is that when they come back to a Hollywood that is doing fewer productions, they can also get fewer jobs, but those fewer jobs can sustain them in a way that their seven jobs were not sustaining them before. Mm. Okay. That sounds okay. <laughs> that's the that's the like hope. That. That's the idea. I would like that. I would like that for them. <laughs> yeah, Chris Kaiser, who's the president, uh, Chris Kaiser at the um, at the WGA, sort of summed it up this way: It's like, uh, you know, in an industry that's coming apart and failing, like this gives this new deal gives writers the protections they need to navigate this much more difficult waters. And it, it yes, Hollywood has always been sort of a very Darwinian world, and it it's going to be. Very, very painful to watch um, as sort of the streaming revolution that Netflix brought sort of brought all these people, especially people who didn't always get a shot. Yeah. You know, it brought a lot of people of color, people disabled, all sorts of different groups were in there. And well, it's going to be really sad thing. to see who gets cut yeah. first. You know, Catherine, you actually wrote about this very beautifully uh, when you were writing about Reservation Dogs, the critically acclaimed show written by Native writers. Um, And you basically said this moment that we've ended up in, where Prestige TV went to peak TV, even though it gave us all this streaming bloat, the fact that all these platforms are spending a lot more money for a lot more shows meant that you could get shows made like Reservation Dogs that were amazing and not just white prestige. You could see them succeed in this moment. Do we get fewer Reservation Dogs quality shows in this new reality? That is that is my fear. I think the my particular fear about a show like that is that in a moment that we seem to be looking ahead to where, uh, you know, there's all of this debt, everyone is very worried about what streaming is going to look like in the future and where the peak has peaked and we are now coming back down, um, that the easy bet is a safe bet. And if you're an executive, that safe bet looks like IP. It looks Mm -hmm. like adaptations. Mm -hmm. It looks like promotion that's sort of already been half done, big names. And so, you know, my concern is not necessarily that people don't recognize that Reservation Dogs was an incredible show. I know a lot of people who do recognize that. My concern is that it feels feels like not the safe bet anymore. Uh, And that what should happen, which is that 
that Sterling Harjo created an incredible show and then everyone backs a Brinks truck up to his house in the future and he gets mm-hmm. the David Simon HBO decade mm-hmm. MacArthur genius deal, which he deserves, yeah. um, is not going to happen. And I, I hope, I very much hope that I am wrong, um, but it, it is the thing that I am most worried about for sort of the immediate future yeah. of TV. I'm worried too. And you know, when I think of like... The stuff that I enjoyed the most in this era of prestige to peak TV, it was stuff that didn't even fit in any genre. I think two of my favorite uh, series from the pandemic era were Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You and Pin 15 on Hulu. Mm. And those shows were so unique and specific and unlike anything I've ever seen before. And they were made by people who weren't household names, and they were so ambitious and so creative, I'm like, oh, have we left that moment in time behind? And it worries me, because that's my favorite stuff. Yeah, I mean, I am also worried, but, I mean, look, it's always a pendulum, right? Yeah. Uh, it will swing too far in one direction, and, mm. and I, I'm not, like, long-term, I do believe it will swing back and it won't look exactly the same but everyone I think there is already evidence on the TV side and on the film side that like whoa Mm. maybe there's too many superheroes and that audience perhaps is not inexhaustible I don't know if it will happen soon enough for my taste which is like uh, last year but um you know, I, I know that eventually it will come back. It's just a question of of when and whether the people who deserve to have those opportunities will be able to hang on long enough for those opportunities to come back around. Yeah. To wrap this thing up, um, what will the two of you be watching in the next few months to see how this post-strike industry kind of shakes out? What's your barometer for the state of the industry going forward? Oh boy! I mean, shows will it be the number of deals? Something else? What are you watching most? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly looking. I would. I'm very curious to see what gets, uh, what development deals get announced in the next couple months. Because part of what the strike has meant is that writers could not be making deals for their new shows, or if they were talking to people, they couldn't say that they were talking to people. And so there are people who I know their shows ended. I really like their work. I'm very curious to see like what gets ordered. What gets ordered is big because. is it going to be, you know, new deals for my my favorite Reservation Dogs alums? Or is it going to be like, David E. Kelly has seven more shows, right? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is what yeah. I'm watching. Who gets the deals? Okay, I get that. I get that. I'm going to be looking to see what sort of ways the studios look to drive holes for this this new deal. Um, what oh. sort of ways, um, uh, as one writer friend called it to me, effery. I'm going to be nice. I don't cuss on your podcast, but you effery. Um, Fuckery. I'm going to say it. Fuckery. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So you're like the, my anger translator. I'm your anger translator. Uh, and, and um, you know, I want to see, for example, you know, one studio person told me, it's like, you know what? Okay, they got minimum writers. Well, unfortunately, I think for some of the minimum writers can become maximum writers. And some petty studios can say, all right, you get four, that's all you get. It's going to be curious to see, you know, how they try to get around these loopholes yeah. because these people have huge egos we've we've learned over the last Aha, five months. You don't say. They were so upset that they were getting dragged on Twitter um, and got very petty. I heard them from their publicists, like, they're being so mean to us. I said, have you heard what the UAW or, or, or the Teamsters are saying about, you yeah. know, their people? Like, you're getting nothing. Fake yeah. Carol is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, they're a little whiny people. And so, but now with their pettiness, it's like, are they going to sort of 
you know, try to drive around it because they've got 300 million lawyers. The writers have much fewer. And sadly, their agents aren't even in their corner as much anymore because they fired a lot of them. So that's what I'm looking for. I'll be watching when and how and if these lower tier streaming services actually become profitable. Like, I'll know the industry has fixed itself when Peacock is in the black. (laughs) You know, but like, we're not there yet. Or even just as sadly more likely that some people think, when do Peacock and Paramount or HBO or Max and someone else combine? Everyone thinks that we're going to get a thing where you have maybe... 25 to 30 percent fewer number of streamers than we have now which can be both good and fine with it fine with it (laughs) fine with it on that note listen if we can end up out of this strike with fewer streaming companies which means fewer streaming executives and more quality shows i'll take it as a win i'll take it uh all right joe Catherine, thank y'all for covering the hell out of this strike and explaining all of it and its aftermath to me and our listeners. I appreciate you both, and I'm honored to be in the same newsroom as y'all, too. Same. Thank you. Thanks again to Vultures, Joe Adalian and Catherine Van Arendonk. All right, listeners, before we go, I want to follow up on something that we talked about last week. And this is Disney expanding its whole parks operation. But also, it's closing one of its most expensive and most mocked attractions. And our very, very nerdy producer, Travis Larchuk, was so sad about that, he wrote an obituary. Live your Star Wars story in a new two-night adventure. The Galactic Star Cruiser, a.k.a. the Star Wars Hotel at Disney World, was infamously described when it opened last year as a, quote, experience that puts only the wealthiest guests inside a windowless bunker for two full days. Hey everybody, it's AJ for Disney Food Blogs. Time to weigh in on what makes this Star Wars hotel so contentious among fans, so outrageous to Disney outsiders. It's closing this week at a loss of $250 million to the Walt Disney Corporation. But the Galactic Star Cruiser wasn't the shitty overpriced vacation the clickbait headlines made it out to be. I know because I went. But remember, staying at the Star Wars Hotel as an adult without a kid will also cost you your dignity. It was overpriced. I spent $1,500 I did not have to sleep in a literal bunk in a tiny room with three other grown-ass adults, and it was awesome. About a dozen actors sent me on covert missions. The ship just shut down. The alarms are going off. I heard that Kylo Ren might be I shot down TIE fighters, trained with a lightsaber. I played holographic space poker. I talked to a droid. I ate blue shrimp. And I got extremely drunk. And for people like me who are into this kind of thing, it was the most technologically ambitious, mind-blowing live-action role-playing game I have ever done. Its creators and cast poured love into it and proved that just because something is based on IP doesn't mean it has to be soulless. And I cannot say the same thing for Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. You are a Palpatine. So pour one out for the Galactic Star Cruiser. It is survived by approximately one million hours of Star Wars content on Disney+. 
All right, Intuit is hosted by me, Sam Sanders. The show is produced by Janae West, Travis Larchuk, Gabby Grossman, Jelani Carter, and Taka Zen. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hokeman. Our engineer is Daniel Turek. Our music is composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. And the executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishat Kurwa. Listeners, we are back on Tuesday with a brand new episode. Until then, send some prayers up that I get some new Abbott Elementary in my life before the end of this year. I want it. Okay, talk soon. Bye. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.